Welcome to Ms. Lyrics Poetry Outlaws, a show about all things poetry. I'm your host, Catherine Owen. Good morning, Poetry Outlaws. It's Tuesday. The birds are singing, 9.30. I can see my Christmas cactus to the left side of me. Still has some gorgeous pink blooms on it, but a lot of them are getting dried up and falling to the floor in various configurations of dance. Uh, Today, so we're going to do another openers today, and it looks like the weeks are going to be shaping up in this season seven to be Thus far, Mondays and Fridays are going to be long poems from the Eco Poetry Anthology. And then Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday will feature an opener like today from a critical text and concluding with a random poem. Then there will be an homage. I'm not sure if I can create an homage every week, but uh, I'm hoping to. This week is going to be Elise Partridge. And then if I get uh, submissions every week of the entrances series, I'll put at least one of those up a week. And if I don't, so this week it's going to be Pam Galloway. And if I don't, well, then I'm sure I can find something to chat about or gur about or, you know, some other poet to a foreground and honor. So today we have the amazing book by Stephen Hyten, uh, who I miss all the time. And uh, his book, The Admin Move on Lhasa, which came out in 1997 from Anansi. And this book was actually how I first encountered Steve uh, in about 98 or 99. I discovered it and, you know, I was in my 20s and I just was super excited by it because particularly in the uh, segments from the essay I'm going to read to you, the chapter uh, called, it's called In the Suburbs of the Heart, uh, I felt like I'd found a kin spirit in terms of his uh, belief that we need deep time in poetry. I mean, it, it's really ahead of its time, this book. I mean, it's its subtitles called Writing and Culture in a Virtual World and How Much More Virtual is Our World Now?, uh, to wit, the latest uh, AI thefts of our real creations or recreations of our real creations. But nonetheless, without that deep humanity that imbues art with the aura, the essential Walter Benjamin's aura and energy and the capacity to move and to keep feeling in the world. So this book is, I mean, it's a very uh, in-depth, intelligent, brilliant uh, foray into everything from travel to politics to uh, homages to poets like Daniel Jones. And yep, there's a couple of chapters that deal with poetry, fiction, writing, the artist's role, and are also opposed to things like, in essence, creative writing workshops. Um, he he was always about the fire, the duende, the solitude that creates the most profound art. So yeah, I mean, when I first read this book, I was just like, wow, this this guy, he's uh, he's saying what I'm thinking and couldn't yet put into words. And so he was definitely a spur for me, a mentor, and. I remember 
writing him, handwriting him a letter, uh, thanking him and telling him what this book meant to me. And gloriously, he wrote me back. And that really uh, stirred me, excited me. And we never stopped corresponding after that until uh, probably about six months before his death last year, off and on, um, more emails than, than handwritten letters. Um, as I say in my homage to him, um, not last season, but the season before. But yeah, so what I thought I would do with this chapter is <laughs> look at, you know, as, as I was uh, saying in the Mary Roofley uh, one, um, I underline and highlight and, you know, note passages in books all the time. And sometimes it's really funny to go back and look at the many years that have passed since my initial reading and think to myself, why did I underline that? Why did it mean so much to me? Why did I put an exclamation mark there or or a question mark or some redundant commentary? So I have a few passages marked in what was my favorite essay or chapter in the suburbs of the heart. And so I'm going to read these passages and I'm going to see if I have anything to say in uh, echoing or opposition or expansion than I felt when I first underlined them, which was probably when I first read this book in 1998 or 1999. So here we go. At the beginning of the essay, the chapter eight in the suburbs of the heart, um, he quotes from George Bowering. Um, about uh, essentially Bowering's opposition to uh, the way he felt Canadians were writing at present with no risk or um, just just writing about autumn leaves or their spouses or um, my ex used to call them, you know, the, the grandmother, the grandfather poems, which I think is unfair because it's about your use of language and form and craft and no subject matter in and of itself is wrong. So the first part I underlined or highlighted here was that most Canadian poetry has lacked the magical catalyst that can transfigure a domestic scene into something timeless. That many writers simply don't think of calling the muses down or to put it another much riskier way of calling things up from the dim dream-webbed cellars and crawl spaces of the soul. Okay, yes. And then he says that soul is a risky word in Canada's literary lexicon, indeed, because it's an abstraction. But what he's saying there is the magical catalyst. I mean, for me, that would be listening to the sound, uh, the textures of language, um, al allowing yourself to be a channel and have the poem flow through you rather than contriving uh, a subject matter, a story that you think is going to be moving a la Mary Oliver um, and, you know, many other poets like Billy Collins say, everything just seems to be uh, shaped to an end instead of uh, having an organic kind of flow. Now, is that... Just Canadian writers? No, of course not. I just mentioned two American ones. Uh, so why would Canadians be more like that as writers? Well, he expands and says that it's because we think of ourselves as nice. We don't want to unsettle the status quo. We don't want to disrupt the system. I mean, is this still the case? Was it the case then? Generalizations, I always cringe at. Um, but perhaps it's a tendency 
Uh, I think it definitely in terms of the fact that um, we have a kind of closed, cliquey system at times where we're afraid to speak our minds because, you know, that might literally shoot us in the in the in the foot for um, prizes or, you know, uh, promotions or whatever the case may be. Ah, my favorite idiom pokes its head up again. So uh, then I underlined, but writing demands along with humility, a kind of arrogance. And then I put yes in the margins and underlined that. So I really liked that at the time. I think that it's true that you can't have either total arrogance or total humility. Again, I think that's a form of combinative energy to have humility with arrogance, but I don't really like the word arrogance in that sense. I mean, what about confidence? Um, It's kind of like the notion that you need to be both tough and vulnerable and fragile to be an artist of any kind, because you need to be vulnerable and fragile in order to listen and see and, and have whatever is going to be given to you pour through you unimpededly, even if it's painful. But you also have to be tough. You have to go out in the world and you're, you're publishing and you're reading and people are critiquing you. And if you're going to fall apart, then it's probably not the world for you. So you need humility in the face of the art and arrogance or confidence in the face of uh, being crushed, which also doesn't mean that you don't need humility in the face of being critiqued in a genuine sense. So again, I think that possibly Steve was a little bit too overgeneralizing there. Uh, Oh, I just remember that I forgot to uh, give you a little blurb from a review of this book. I had a hard time finding any reviews of this book and I wonder if it came out now, if he, if he would have more reviews, because his name uh, was a lot bigger at the end, of course, than it was at the beginning. Uh, he'd put out uh, poetry and short fiction by this point, but uh, he wasn't as renowned. So this is, uh, I'm just going to interrupt myself to read a little blurb from Lawrence Matthews in Essays on Canadian Writing that came out in spring 1998. And he says... This is a passionate, generous-spirited, earnest collection of essays exuberantly out of step with academic orthodoxy, blessedly anachronistic. Okay, that's what I loved about it, too. I felt like he was unafeared, and he remained unafeared, and he did so because he remained outside of institutions, and he focused wholly on his writing and his beliefs that it could change things, that it could matter. So that was what he focused on and lived for, not the opinions of others. Okay, so back to the line, another line I put in parentheses, not to suffer change is to choose life in the suburbs of the heart, which is obviously where the title came from. Uh, That's right. I mean, that's the absurd thing sometimes about, say, uh, an early book winning a large prize And, you know, it doesn't really matter what genre it is, but the author can often feel stuck in that mode as if that was the only allowed mode because it was the gold starred mode. And the fact is, as an artist, that's the core of creating is constantly changing and shifting and opening yourself to new sounds and forms and subject matters and 
not being limited and, um, you know, going wild and crazy at times and, and, and just not being bound by these external aims. So then he talks a little bit later on, which I highlighted, about the creative writing workshop industry. He, he says, many blame it for leveling out the uniqueness of promising writers and rationalizing their gifts. And though much can be gained from taking a few basic courses and working with a sympathetic teacher, there's a real danger in conditioning students to accept criticism by committee or by consensus, as often occurs in the workshop. Having gone to uh, UBC and taken the um, 10-day residency program as part of the MFA in nonfiction, uh, I definitely felt that way. I felt like the instructor almost just sat back and let the students give their opinions and reactions. And, you know, you would have multiple versions of your text with all their uh, responses scrawled all over it. And then you would decide, huh, well, who do I believe in? You know, who who, who do I think is, is making sense here? So that is also a possibility, as I've noted with you know, the, the, the bios, the, uh, the acknowledgements and so forth, where you have so many people listed as assisting your manuscript. Seems a little bit bizarre at times. Okay, so then he says, uh, Canadian writers are torn from the heart's true center towards one of two lifeless poles. Okay, a home and native extreme of well-meaning sentimentality or the bitter Antarctic wastes of the media world with its cult of heartless, unremitting irony. So he's saying, how can a workshop enable writers to deal with the gravitation between these two poles, the sentimental and the ironic? Uh, so he says, most new writers will have to have these abilities already or discover them on their own. So in the end, well, a workshop can do a variety of things. It cannot create the writer. The writer is created in and of themselves and they have to do the work on their own in order to continue being the writer. So it can give you tools, but it can't give you a vision. You know, it can't give you a drive. It can't give you the tenacity and so forth. But I think at this point, we kind of know that creative writing workshops are designed to create creative writing teachers, uh, and also to keep churning out the first books in the system. So then he says, oh, I'm going to end on this quote, because I think it's beautiful. So he says, the poetic imagination is subversive of institutions and standardizing monopolies and always has been, so that we need the muses and the angels now more than ever. And that's what I loved about Steve Hyden is he he wasn't he wasn't afraid to write about anything in any way because his poetic imagination was above and beyond any constrictions or limitations. So now I'm going to end with a random poem selected from my bookcase. I just pulled this book out with my eyes shut no less. And it's Louise Gluck's The Seven Ages, American poet. And her poem, the book opened to, called Island. 
The curtains parted, light coming in, moonlight, then sunlight. Not changing because time was passing, but because the one moment had many aspects. White lysanthus in a chipped vase, sound of the wind, sound of lapping water, and hours passing, the white sails luminous, the boat rocking at anchor. Motion, not yet channeled in time. The curtains shifting or stirring, the moment shimmering, a hand moving backward, then forward. Silence. And then one word, a name. And then another word, again, again. And time salvaged like a pulse between stillness and change. Late afternoon, the soon-to-be-lost becoming memory, the mind closing around it, the room claimed again as a possession, sunlight, then moonlight, the eyes glazed over with tears, and then the moon fading, the white sails flexing. You've been listening to Miss Lyric's Poetry Outlaws. Stay fierce word musicians.